Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is Michael A. West, P.E.A.I.A. Mr. West received a Bachelor of Architecture degree from the University of Illinois Urbana in 1971 and a Master of Business Administration from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1977. Mike has been employed at Computerized Structural Design, SC, since 1978, was made an associate in 1981, and a principal in 1985. Mr. West is registered in Wisconsin, both as an architect and as a professional engineer, and as a professional engineer in Michigan and Ohio. Mr. West is the co-author of several AISC design guides and also the co-author of AISC's lectures, Intelligent Design and Effective Design. He has lectured extensively for AISC, both at NASCC and in AISC seminars over the last 25 years. Mr. West is a member of AISC's committees on manuals and textbooks and the Code of Standard Practice and AISC's Specification Technical Committee, TC13, on Quality Control and Assurance and is chair of AISC's Certification Standards Committee. Mike is also a member of ACI's Committee 117 on Tolerances and chairs the AISC ACI Task Group on Tolerances for the Construction of Steel and Concrete Structures. Additionally, Mike is a member of ASCE's Standards Committee 37, Design Loads on Structures During Construction. Welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And thanks for the invitation. I was very flattered to have been invited to do a podcast. Well, good. We always like to hear that. What did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> what a wonderful question. I wanted to be an architect. I decided to do that in seventh grade. We were assigned a project to figure out what you wanted to be when you grew up. And I created the seventh grader's impression of what an architect did. It's somewhere in the archives. My parents saved it, and I got it when they downsized their house, and it's somewhere. But at any rate, uh, this notion of being an architect, being an engineer, and working on buildings started in the seventh grade. What did you think an architect did when you were in the seventh grade? Well, I actually remember some of the drawings and photos that I put in this work of uh, art or Mm -hmm. project. Uh, One of them was a uh, seventh grader's drawing of a drive-through truss bridge. And I remember also putting in a photo of the uh, Guggenheim in New York because that had just recently opened and was in uh, all the magazines. Hmm. Beyond that, I don't remember what's in there, but I do remember those two little pieces. So it has an architect and an engineer did something to do with the bridges, and they did something with Guggenheim Museums. <laughs> and uh, that was as far as I went in the seventh grade. So you went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for your undergrad degree. Your bachelor's degree is actually in architecture, so you did actually study architecture. You're a registered architect as well as a professional engineer. So why did you study architecture and not engineering? Because, based on my seventh graders' impression of what architects and engineers did, modified by what I picked up in high school for what that was worth, I thought that architects designed buildings and engineers designed what we now call infrastructure. And so, oh, okay. so engineers did what we think of as civil engineering in my mind. Right. And that was uh, 
infrastructure, bridges, water, sewer, water reclamation, etc. So it was the school of architecture, plus my father uh, thought it would be uh, a good idea for me to follow that uh, course of study. For architecture? Yes. Yeah. You went on to earn an MBA. Did you go out work before you went back to get your MBA? I did. I graduated in 1971. I joined a full-service architectural firm in the engineering, structural engineering department, and after a couple years decided that having an MBA would be smart. It was uh, just getting going as a second degree for professionals, and in 1971 I didn't have much of a resume. Adding a master's of business administration made sense to me. So after two years of working, I still worked full-time and did the MBA part-time in four years. Oh, okay. You've been employed with Computerized Structural Design, SC, in Milwaukee since 1978. You've been a principal since 1985. I know that you seem to have a policy that you do not like working with architects as clients. Uh, why is that? And what type of client do you prefer? Well, you have to make a little bit of a distinction between yours truly mm -hmm. and the firm. Uh, yes. The firm, uh, when I arrived, with a skill set that didn't seem to quite match the target market of the firm, but I was uh, brought on board anyway, uh, had already been in business for 10 years and had tried a more traditional practice offering engineering services to architects and it didn't quite work as well as everyone had wanted. However, when I arrived with my skill set, we still worked on some architectural projects, but that's not the main focus of the firm. And I worked on several projects over the years, hospitals, office buildings, academic buildings, university, and uh, uh, primary, secondary as well. And uh, I enjoyed it uh, thoroughly. But now you work on what type of clients? Now, the focus is on what I will broadly refer to as construction engineering, working for fabricators working for owners working for steel erectors temporary bracing i am not involved in the connection design part of the firm but i've worked on machine foundations that are in the industrial buildings that my colleagues uh, design jim fisher uh, is your colleague at csd and your longtime friend told me to ask about the ups project in chicago he says you kept many secrets from him on that project yes i did <laughs> what kind of secrets? Well, Jim Fisher knows my approach to projects. And it's also part of my life approach, which is uh, the hallmark of which is procrastination. And it's uh, something that I picked up on working on architectural projects uh, very early in the game, in that the design evolves. And if you design the first conception of the building and then it changes and you design the second conception of the building you wind up doing twice as much work so as a management approach I procrastinate but it's also part of my uh, whole being so he knew that but he didn't want to know the details of it and how that manifested itself in the project however when all was said and done and he doubtless knew that this was going to happen. The project was successfully completed on time. Uh, UPS was happy. Our client, the lead design firm, was happy. The team was assembled again for a second project, and so all was well. But I'm sure that Jim suspected that there was some 
procrastination and the downsides associated therewith involved. And that's, Which were? Well, it's, it's not really much of a deal except that there's a lot of late night scrambling going on. And it's the kind of thing where everything has to click. Mm -hmm. If you hit a roadblock that can't be resolved easily, that's a problem. And, and so it's a little last minute and everything has to click. But it did. And uh, that was that. The details of all that are really just uh, minutiae, day-to-day so he just minutia. So he just didn't need to know? He did not. All he needed to know was at the end, if you asked him, I'm sure he would ha agree that he knew that it would come out in the end because it had in the past, and I wouldn't have been involved in the project <laughs> if he wasn't absolutely sure that that was going to happen. What's your method for mentoring young engineers? I actually have a couple of different strategies. One when they come and ask me a question, I don't answer it. <laughs> Indeed. I don't answer it because I want them to find the answer. I want them to dig in textbooks and ASTM standards and other resources and come up with a solution that then we will discuss and I will judge to see whether or not they've done a good job, whether they have solved the problem correctly, but that process of digging and researching is educational. And so that's the number one thing. And I've always done that. Quite frankly, that was the approach that people took when they were mentoring me. They didn't even know that they were mentoring me in the process because we didn't talk in terms of mentoring in that era. But what I, as I said, what I don't do is I don't give answers. I give direction. I say, look over here, look over there, talk to this individual. In our firm, we have a lot of very capable folks. They have specialties, and the young engineers don't always know who has the best skill set and background and knowledge on a particular topic, and I do, and I steer them in that direction. The second part of this is after they've done some work, after they've done either a whole project or a part of a project, uh, we sit down and we talk about the project and I ask them questions about the project. And if the first question uh, goes well, then we move to another topic. If the answer to the first question doesn't go very well, then there's a follow-up question, and then there might be another follow-up question to that. But when all is said and done, I think that when we've completed the process, I have a very good understanding of what they've done, that they've met project requirements, that they've followed uh, codes, that they have an understanding of the engineering, that they have, in fact, a complete load path from top to bottom, covered all loose ends, and made sure that the specifications actually follow the design that they've created. Fantastic. Some engineers actually like it. Some, I think, I'm just speculating, probably aren't too keen on the process. I think they would, might just want an really? answer. <laughs> well, but it sounds like they learn a lot in the process. I think so. Whether they like it or not, they're learning. Yeah, and the, the only way to do that is to get some testimonials from the <laughs> graduates of the Mike West School for Young Engineers. Well, maybe I'll do that. And there are some. <laughs> Uh, you're a world traveler with a lot of great stories about your many destinations. What's the best place you've ever been and why? Notwithstanding that it's a little difficult question, I'm going to answer it with two uh, countries that I really, for slightly different reasons. I've had a number of very excellent visits to the country of Japan, 
they're an ally of the United States of America. They like Americans. They're very welcoming to visitors. And it's not very difficult to navigate in their nation, but you do have to prepare. You do have to think. You do have to work out problems. And whenever I've traveled, I've always added that working out problems aspect. And the other place is Italy. Italy, of course, has uh, thousands of years of history, wonderful culture, and also welcoming to Americans. Mm -hmm. I think that those are two good suggestions. And anybody who would like some travel tips, of course, I'll be happy to supply them. Now, do you speak Japanese or Italian? Uh, Skoshi, that's Japanese. I think at one time I knew how to say a little in Italian. I did actually pick up Italian using tapes in the car and books. You wouldn't think that you could do that, but I I could actually say to a filling station attendant whether or not they accepted credit cards. (laughs) I thought you were going to say maybe one of your favorite places was France because you speak French, correct? I do. Uh, The reason I speak French is that I did a semester abroad there Mm -hmm. and didn't speak French. I brought two years of high school Latin to five months of a semester abroad and so when I came back and I had the time I made myself learn French and I think I did pretty well although you know it fades as time goes if you don't exercise that skill but I, I've, I've traveled extensively in France absolutely mm-hmm. where do you still look forward to going I have a few destinations left only a few only a few wow. one of them is the uh, pyramids and the antiquities uh, in Egypt mm-hmm. and I would like to go to all seven continents I've only been to five oh, okay. so Australia and Antarctica are left so you plan on going to Antarctica eventually yeah 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 you have to go there with a tour group and there are regular tours that go there and so I'll sign up for one and that'll be that. I hate to put off a whole continent so uh, offhandedly, but that's sure. what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> How many mountains have you climbed? Aside from some minor peaks uh, who, whose names I've forgotten, I've climbed Mount Fuji twice. Fantastic. And I think that's uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Supposedly, in the Japanese culture, you're supposed to climb Mount Fuji once, but then they wonder about your motivation if you climb it more times than that. But the first time was in a fog and rain, literally in the clouds, just like when you're in an airplane. So the second time was to see the sun, uh, which I did. So I enjoyed both climbs, both ascents, although it's it's not really like mountain climbing because there's a path, but it's, it's strenuous. Do you have any other plans to climb any other mountains? No. No? No. But I understand that you can drive to the top of Pikes Peak and that has an appeal. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yes. I've been told that your vacations used to be about visiting museums and cathedrals, but now you're more interested in finding a nice beach. That is absolutely correct. Why the change? Well, it goes back to my days at the University of Illinois. One of the subjects we took, and we took four uh, three-credit semesters of architectural history. If you had the chance to visit these sites beyond looking at them in slides and books, you were supposed to. And the ultimate of that is to go and look at them and not just take a photo, but actually make a drawing of them. We did a little bit of that in my semester abroad. So with that training in mind and with a library with a few architectural history books, I somewhat methodically worked my way from building A to building Z. But at one point, it finally dawned on me that I had actually seen them all. <laughs> now, one shouldn't 
think of this as just checking things off, but it sure has that appearance mm -hmm. to a third-party observer. Uh, was there one thing that you saw when you were still doing the museums and cathedrals that meant more to you than anything else? Well, I finally got to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin when the wall came down. And when the wall came down, the Brandenburg Gate was open. Uh, that was a big deal. You might have missed the Cold War, <laughs> but I didn't. And in, in first grade, like all good first graders or second grade or something, we had the get-under-your-desks drill. The Cold War was a big deal. And the epicenter of the Cold War was the Brandenburg Gate and the wall. Mm -hmm. And so when the wall came down, I made a trip to what was then East Germany. And now you cannot drive through the Brandenburg Gate, but I did. Because it was not long after the wall had come down. The uh, Russian army was still in some of their barracks. And the Russian army trucks were driving around, although it was, they were clearly demobilizing because that was part of the agreement. I've heard that you're currently working on plans for celebrating your 65th birthday next year. Where are you going to celebrate your 65th birthday? Well, this is still the planning phase. But so far, I've got penciled in, in May, which is not my birthday, uh, attending the Grand Prix de Monaco. That's on the list. Mm -hmm. And then there might be some beach trips, because as you pointed out in your earlier question, that is the new venue of trips. Right, because you said you're going to be celebrating your birthday for the entire year. I couldn't figure out a reason why I wouldn't. I think that's a great idea. I think everybody should do that. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and 65 isn't just a minor, minor birthday. Right. After all, I qualify for Medicare. <laughs> yes, that's, that's a big deal. It is. So you're going to the Grand Prix. Yes. And this is something that you've wanted to do most of your life. Yes. Back in the Cold War, European racing was a big deal. European cars were a big deal deal. British cars, German cars, etc. were a big deal. And so somehow, and I don't know quite how, but it was in all the press, it was in newspapers, It was there was coverage on TV, certainly caught my attention. And so I made a note to think about it. So now you're finally going to do it. Absolutely. Are you excited? Yes. <laughs> it's just a matter of how deeply you want to dip into your wallet. Yes, it is. But 65, that's a big deal. So. It is. You are the president of your village, Fox Point, Wisconsin. I am. I have been for about ten and a half years. I'm in the fourth three-year term. I was a trustee prior to that. Modern Steel Construction was very nice to do a feature article on me uh -huh. and talked about some of my motivations. It's, uh, it's a fun job. It's politics. There is large segment of our population that questions uh, politics and uh, participants in politics and politicians, but uh, it's fun. You uh, are challenged. You have to resolve differences. You have to bring the community together to figure out ways forward on policy, on spending, taxing, and do it in our great democratic system. Mm -hmm. You hold other offices as well. I do. Can you I, tell me what all the offices are you hold? Well, I appoint myself. <laughs> I do. I appoint myself, subject to confirmation of the village board, to the North Shore Water Commission. I am on, as a result of being village president, I'm on the board of directors of the North Shore Fire Department, which is a consolidated department of seven communities. I'm on the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewage District Commission. 
and I'm current chairman, which is a very great honor to be chosen from and by my colleagues for that office, so it's a great compliment. And of course, all it does is raise the bar yet again to make sure that one uh, does a good job. Mm -hmm. How much longer would you like to serve as president of your village? I'm thinking about one more term. That would be 15 years if I did it. It really is up to my colleagues. It's up to the citizens. I've been elected in five, I think it's, yeah, five uncontested elections. So either nobody else wants to serve or they think I'm doing okay. Mm -hmm. You've been a longtime friend of the Institute, serving on our Code of Standard Practice Committee, the Manuals Committee, and TC13 on Quality Control and Assurance, as well as on committees for ACI and ASCE. Why do you think this is an important use of your time? Because I get to advance the interests of the Institute, or I wouldn't be there if I didn't. But I also get a little bit of credibility as an engineer being chosen to serve on these very important committees. I think I make a little bit of a contribution. I can't imagine I'd be invited back if I didn't. <laughs> but it's, it's very enjoyable and it's very challenging and I've learned a lot. I've learned an awful lot from the other members on the committee, mm -hmm. other engineers, fabricators, erectors, etc. both the folks from consulting, practice, and industry. You're a big believer in following the proper meeting rules. I am. Why is that? Well, Robert's Rules of Order is called Rules of Order because you might think that orderliness, and as opposed to its opposite, which is chaos, might be a good thing. There are those folks who think that applying rules and orderliness is to stifle minority positions. It's actually not true. If the rules are properly done, everybody gets their say. Everybody gets to weigh in, but then after that open period takes place, everybody has had their opportunity, then there's a vote, and then the winners go, okay, that's nice. And the losers are supposed to say, well, we took our best shot and we didn't prevail. That's what's supposed to happen. And it's up to the chairman to make that happen. It means that not only the chairman, but all the members of the group really have to understand the rules. They have to know why they're being applied. And the truest, truest reason is to make sure that the minority is heard. But when all is said and done, the group acts, the group votes, and then the group goes forward. You also lecture for AISC in our seminar series that travel the country and also at NASCC most years. So what motivates you to spend your time lecturing? Well, if a person thought that serving on an AISC committee was a compliment to them, being asked to go out on behalf of the Institute and give lectures where people actually pay money to hear you, I can't imagine much of a higher compliment. And what that does, again, is raise the bar. Uh, when I am out giving a lecture for the Institute, I want to make sure I do a good job. I want to make sure that I look good, that our firm looks good, and that the Institute looks good. And again, I have been invited back, so something <laughs> must be clicking. Yes, over and over. My first podcast interview that I ever did was with your colleague, Jim Fisher. One of the questions I asked him was to name the most interesting person he had ever worked with, and he named you. He said that you argue and never agree on anything, but in the end, you are always able to come up with a good solution. So what's it like working with Jim? Great fun. <laughs> Jim Fisher, who needs no introduction, who needs no more plaudits from yours truly, but I might give him some anyway, is a very, very bright individual. He has great academic credentials, but beyond that, he has great judgment and 
great intuition. He moves very quickly when he takes a matter under consideration and makes the decision. The decision is made, that's it, and we move on. Now, as you pointed out in your question, we do have a little bit of difference in style. Uh -huh. And that came out in my answer to the UPS question. <laughs> Uh, we do have a difference in style, but this is not a new magic concept that I figured out. But if you have people with identical skill sets, then you have too many people. The whole point is to bring people together with complementary skill sets or different skill sets so that they can bounce off of each other and react to each other's ideas and come up with better solutions in the end. And that's, I think, what we've done. And we've done it for several years. And we've worked on buildings together. We've worked on lectures together. We've worked on design guides together. And uh, as I said, it's been great fun. How many years have you worked with Tim? Well, depending on how you're counting, and I think <laughs> I think the uh, the first collaboration was a, was a small article on the application of mini computers to engineering practice that was published in some magazine, which uh, we could track down if we needed to. In the roundest of numbers, it's 30 years. And besides all that, Jim's just a lot of fun. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not afraid to pick up a bar tab either. <laughs> Uh, if you weren't in the structural engineering field, what other career do you think you would have enjoyed? Well, this actually occurred to me long after I could have done anything about it unless some massive dislocation in career path and career trajectory occurred. But it occurred to me long after I had been in practice and actually knew what I was doing and, and had the appropriate licenses, etc. So everything is already clicking and normally you don't throw that out the window. But it occurred to me that I might have been an attorney. Mm -hmm. I could see that. Thank you. <laughs> and our family did not have a background in law. Mm -hmm. Both my aunts and uncles on both sides of the family and family friends just did different things. They didn't come from a, a tradition in the law. But I'm positive, <laughs> speculating of course, that I could have done something with a, with a law degree as opposed to a Bachelor of Architecture degree and an MBA. Mm -hmm. What's the one thing that you know now that you wish you had known at the beginning of your career? I thought about this question because, as you, as you very well know, you supply these questions in advance. But of I course. actually thought about this, and it, it took me a while, but I finally got an answer. And the answer is, I wish I would have known. I don't think I would have changed my mind about the course of study and employment that I did. But the practice of structural engineering in the private sector is a tough way to make a living. And that is what would have been nice to know in advance. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I do have one more question. Yes. We're doing this interview the night before our seminar in Portland, Maine. Yes, we are. The last seminar of my season is tomorrow. We have a tradition after a seminar, if we have time. We always go out for two beers. Absolutely. What do you always toast? Steel. <laughs> Here's the steel. There's always a solution in steel. That is well. That's what you that always well. say. Yes, but the reason that I said <laughs> what I did is that I've been toasting to steel long before AISC marketing figured out that there's always a solution in steel. So that's why I answered the way I did. Fantastic. Well, I always enjoy that that's, that's what you toast. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Mike. Those are all my questions for you. It's you're, been a pleasure. Thank you as well. You're very welcome. 
This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. Join us next month when my guest will be Dr. John Fisher, Professor Emeritus of Civil Engineering at Lehigh University. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.